Today on Truth in Politics and Culture, we will talk about the expanding war in Israel as the Jewish state readies a full ground assault in Gaza. We will also talk about the response to the attack near, um, uh, or the response to the attack, rather, here and around the world. And if you're wondering why you didn't get any mail yesterday, well, it was a government holiday, Columbus Day. We'll talk about how Columbus is much maligned by progressives in today's culture. This is Dr. Tony Bean, and it's time to crank it up. Everybody, um, just I have to apologize right off the bat. I am not at my best today, as you can probably tell. Um, my voice has been affected by this crud that I'm carrying around, and uh, I'm just not really feeling very well today. <laughs> On top of that, but as a good soldier, as a good uh, a good uh, leader, a good person in. Uh, in, in the land of podcasting, <laughs> one of the rules is you never give in. You never give up. You, the, the show must go on. You've heard that forever. And um, so anyway, I'm going to try to be all those things today and push through, even though my, my voice is probably going to irritate more than it is going to soothe people today. But I, thanks to everybody, by the way, who's listening this morning. Um, and uh, we will, uh, we on Facebook Live, I should say. I apologize. I'm doing about two or three different things at once here, which has gotten to be pretty routine with me. We're looking forward to uh, Lieutenant Governor Pamela Evick calling in this morning. Uh, she's going to give us a call here in just a few minutes. We're going to talk about how things are going in South Carolina, and I'm going to get her response to things that are going on around the world, as well as the last legislative session and what she's looking for, uh, she and the governor are looking forward to in the upcoming legislative session. But as you see, I'm decked out in my Braves gear today, and I have to take a second to talk about baseball because the Atlanta Braves really came back from the dead last night. I mean, they got shut out in the first game uh, of, the, of the series for, for the National League title, and it just looked bad for the Braves. They were down 4-1 to one last night at one point, but they launched an incredible comeback. Ronald Acuna, Acuna Jr. Uh, created a run in the sixth, basically because he's one of the fastest people on the base pads. Travis Darno uh, chased Wheeler, who was pitching last night for the Phillies, with a two-run homer in the seventh. And all of that set the stage for Austin Riley, who hit a go-ahead homer with two outs in the eighth. And the Braves ended up winning last night 5-4. to four. So they're going to head to from Atlanta to Philadelphia split rather than with the Phillies up. Um, and by two games, and that's going to make a huge difference. So the Braves are back in it. That's that's the bottom line, and that's good news if you're a Braves fan because too many Braves fans were just thinking, you know, th this is deja vu all over again, as they say, because last year in the uh, National League uh, Division Series, we, we just the NDLS was a disaster for the Braves because of the Phillies. And nothing to take away from the Phillies, by the way. The Phillies played great. 
Um, they are a postseason team. I mean, they slogged through the regular season. The Braves pretty much coasted through the regular season. I mean, they won uh, the most games in baseball, and the Phillies had to hang on and claw and fight just to get in. And then they come into the postseason, and they are absolutely um, pumped up and ready to play. And, uh, of course, again, shut the Braves out in the first game, but the Braves were will, were able to come back last night with a comeback victory, and hopefully that's going to give the Braves enough steam, at least for me um, as a Braves fan, it'll give them the steam to get through the series. I apologize. I'm going to be probably popping out here a good bit um, just to cough. Uh, this is a terrible cold that has decided, decided to settle in on me today. Uh, but as I said, we're going we're gonna to push forward. Uh, we're looking forward to talking to the lieutenant governor here in just a minute. Of course, a lot of the program today is going to be dedicated to the ongoing war in Israel, and some of it is going to be dedicated to the response that is taking place here in the United States, which is absolutely uh, from the left, from progressives, is unconscionable. All right, we'll get back to that in just a minute, but right now we're going to grab the phone because on the phone this morning, we're honored to have the Lieutenant Governor of the State of South Carolina, Lieutenant Governor Pamela Evett. Thanks for joining us today. Tony, thank you for having me. We've been talking about doing this for forever, I think now. Yeah, it's been at least forever, uh, probably a little bit longer than that, although I guess that's technically <laughs> impossible. But uh, no, we just it, it just takes a little bit of time to get all of our schedules on the same page. Um, and you're very welcome to be on the show today. I apologize for my voice. Um, I'm struggling a little bit today, got a little bit of a, a cold going on. So um, if I if you hear me drop out for a second, it's because I don't want you to hear me cough. But uh, <laughs> welcome, welcome to the show. I want to begin by asking you just to reflect a little bit on the legislative session that finished up back in, in May and, and went into June for a little bit, I think, um, just to, to talk about some of the things that you feel really good about that we were able to accomplish. And then I want you to tell us specifically, what are the things that you're most excited about in South Carolina as we look at the economy and as we look at moving forward as a state? Oh, well, that thank you. Th those are all great things. You know, we had a very robust legislative session. Uh, you and I uh, spoke many times about finally uh, getting back on uh, and passing um, the latest rendition of the heartbeat bill. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that is something people of South Carolina have really worked on for a long time. And it became even more important this year because our neighbors all around us had put in together, put together and passed tighter legislation on abortion. And so South Carolina was really becoming an abortion destination state and the numbers uh, were growing at a staggered rate. It was, it was staggering how many people were coming here from out of state. So that was a huge win. Certificate of need, also um, something that uh, the General Assembly um, worked hard on this year, unanimous consent, something that the governor and I um, just did a ceremonial bill signing on. Um, we want to make sure that healthcare, healthcare is something that is talked about a lot, especially in our rural areas. And how do we um, give good quality health care? And, you know, our very own in this area, Mike Burns, uh, very passionate about that when we had an emergency room close here in our area. And so really looking at 
Um, how do we deliver the best quality health care to the people of South Carolina? And how are we going to do that in, in a most affordable way? You know, this is not a hospital against doctor kind of issue. In South Carolina, as we see all over the country, we have got to be competitive to get more insurance carriers into our state right. on all different levels. And so when we have rules that drive up the price of health care, very hard to get insurance companies to be excited about coming into our state. What this does is it gives them that spirit of excitement that gets them back uh, to the table to get them to come in. So that was a really good thing. And, you know, something I think we don't talk about enough, Tony, is that got passed unanimously in the House and Senate. Right. Yeah. In this it, era it, that we live yeah, in. There, and, and yeah, not, I don't mean to interrupt, but I do want to add to no. that just to simply say that um, we we are in a very divided political tribalistic world. And when the House and the Senate can come together like that, recognize a need, Democrats, Republicans, both uh, understanding what needs to happen for the people of South Carolina, and they put that first. That's just an example of how well we can govern if we just do that all the time with every every issue. You know, Tony, you are exactly right. Um, my dad, when I was when I was getting the start into into college and thinking about what my role would be in the business world, I used to get you know really good nuggets of advice from him, and he used to say, in any negotiation, everybody has to walk away from the table a little happy and a little sad. Right. Because it, that is a good, solid negotiation. Otherwise, nobody will ever come back to the table. Right. Um, and, and I think that's something we've lost, as you've said, right? We are very spirited in our beliefs. Um, you know, even now we see um, with what's happening in Israel. And, and for a second, if, if I can regress, you know, yes. may God bless and, and stay with the people of Israel. Because... Yes. Um, what is happening to them, um, you know, this is genocide. When you kidnap and murder and kill women and children, this is genocide. And, and the world should stand together. And the fact that we have anybody that would say what has happened there is somehow justified, I don't know where you go from there. Like, I don't know how – it used to be people would be embarrassed to if you felt that way you had enough restraint to know that you could not come and say that because everybody around you um, would, 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 be, would be in shock and, and awe. Right. And well, unfortunately, we're seeing that that happens. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you 100%. I, um, I've, I've, you know, you, you, of course, are familiar with Ben Shapiro at Daily Wire. And, of course, he's an Orthodox Absolutely. Jew. And yesterday on his program, it was difficult um, I, even though I, I listen to him regularly and watch when I can on Daily Wire, the program, uh, it was difficult because he was showing video that was actually put out by Hamas, and it was some of the most barbaric treatment of civilian women and children that I have ever seen. And to draw some kind of moral equivalency between uh, Hamas and Israel is absurd because of the brutality. If, if anybody's interested, the brutality is on display. And I fear going forward, we're going to see that brutality displayed even more as they begin to execute some of these hostages, unless the IDF forces can get in there and rescue them before that happens. And we pray, of course, that that would be the case. 
Um, Tony, I agree. Last year, uh, I was on an economic trade mission to Jerusalem and got to, you know, sit firsthand with all of their ministers. Um, you know, defense, we were at the embassy, um, got to see the new embassy that, you know, President Trump moved into Jerusalem, as so many had promised, but he delivered. And, you know, what struck, what, what struck me probably and, and has always been top of mind, and I've been seeing it this morning on the news, is how their young people are so proud of the country they live in. Right. And somehow we have got to get that spirit of pride back into the U.S. and our young people. Um, you know, we have got to make sure, you know, so many young, even American born and raised Jewish children go back to seek Eliyah in Israel to fight for the country they feel, you know, that it, under prophecy, you know, yes. through the Bible that God has promised to them. And, and that spirit you're seeing in the way that they, like, again, they come from the U.S. where we don't have a, this very high spirit of military anymore, which is saddening to me. And they will seek Eliyah, go back at 18 and serve in the Israeli army. Right. Uh, because they feel that that is so important to them. Cause, but it's not important to them because their government told them that. It's important. Uh, Lieutenant Governor? I think we lost you. Um, <laughs> I don't know what happened, but if you could call back, um, the call got dropped, and we can't hear you anymore. So if you would give me a call back here in just a second, I'd like for us to finish our conversation because that was really going well. Um, you know, in, in talking about the people of Israel, the last time I was there, I was on an APAC trip, and certainly the sense of national unity, the sense of pride in the country. All right, here we go. I think we've got her back on now. Okay, uh, sorry about that. Somehow we just kind of dropped the call. <laughs> just Welcome died, back. but yeah. that's okay. Well, you know, you um, were talking about being in Israel, and I was you're, you're talking about the pride of the Israeli people in their country and their love for each other. I was on an APAC trip the last time I went to Israel, and we were able to go into an Orthodox family's Shabbat celebration uh, as they began to welcome in the Sabbath. And sitting in the home, there were about 24 of us, uh, most of us pastors, were there in a, in a home where we watched the Father stand up and sing out of the Psalms to his wife and to his children. And he sang about his responsibility as a father and sang about the love that he has for his family. And it's one of the most moving things I've ever seen. One of the other things that we can learn or we should focus on, um, on the people of, of Israel, the Jewish people, is the amount of dedication and love they had for the family, which is something we need, just as we need a national pride, uh, I agree 100%, we do need that. Uh, to return a patriotism that maybe is slipping a little bit in this country. And we also need the emphasis on the family that I saw there that was such a beautiful thing. Oh, Tony, you're right. We had the, the privilege of doing the same thing. We had a family welcome us in for Shabbat. And it was, you know, I, I have some dear friends uh, in 
Chicago and New York that are Orthodox, um, and but had never been to a Shabbat uh, supper. And you're right, the way they pray together and talk, and it and it's a day of celebration, and it's something um, you know we David and I have tried to do forever. Phones away from the table. Yeah. You know, let's talk about our day. Let's talk about things that we're happy with. Let's just talk. And that's what they do. You know, there, there's there's no electronics. Um, it is a time that 24 hours from sundown on Friday till sundown on Saturday, that they are completely vo- devoted to their faith and their family. And you're right. That sense of family is something that we have seen slipping away for a long time. But the only people that can change that our moms and dads and um you know we david and i felt that it 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 was something we felt strongly about sending our kids to parochial school because we wanted the same messages we were teaching in our home to be taught and that came with a lot of sacrifice as you know as a parent none of these things are are easy or cheap and but i remember one of the headmasters at our kids school um telling us that if if a mother takes her child to church every sunday you have a 50% chance of your children staying with their faith. But if a father joins in that equation, the statistics are over 90% that your children will stay with their faith. Right. And that's staggering. You know, when you think about it, you're going, wow. Yeah. Um, it, so it, men play, they do play an important role. It absolutely does. I have to tell you a quick funny story about that Shabbat celebration because, of course, they celebrate with a glass of wine. Um, which is mm-hmm. lifted. And, you know, being Southern Baptist, um, we we have this thing about making sure that we don't consume alcohol. And I actually, working at a Southern Baptist institution, had promised that I would not consume alcohol in any amount. Now, I want to be clear, I don't think North Greenville University would have come after me in any way if I had picked up a glass of wine, but I made a promise. I mean, I, I you know, it was part of my word that I gave. So I'm sitting there and then served wine to everybody. And I was nervous. And the host could tell that there was something that I was feeling uncomfortable about. And she came over, the the wife came over and sat a little cup of Welch's grape juice (laughs) right next to my plate and said, you know, just kind of smiled and sat it down. And I had to laugh out loud. I thought, here's this family, you know, Obviously, nothing wrong with them celebrating with a glass of wine. But she sensed that that might be an issue for me and actually brought out the Welch's grape juice. Now, that's she had to have some kind of understanding of Southern Baptist life here. That's the only thing I can say. That was just hilarious. But anyway, yes, the Jewish people are, uh, we need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We need to pray for them, the families that have been separated, the families who have lost loved ones the military that is getting ready for what is likely to be a protracted ground engagement in uh, Gaza. Um, we just, they, they need our prayers and our support. Let me shift gears here for just a second because I, I don't want our time to expire before I ask you about the upcoming legislative session in South Carolina beginning in January. I know one of the things that's going to be on the table, uh, at least debated, is judicial reform. Uh, there are a lot of meetings yes. taking place about that. Talk about your what you see as a need and maybe a path toward judicial reform. 
Well, I think what we want to do is, like you said, in that spirit of cooperation and grace is to get something that we, we believe can be passed, right? Because arguing a point that we know cannot be moved forward is just right. a waste of the taxpayer's time. That's correct. And and I believe I believe with the governor that things kind of like we do it on the federal level where the governor appoints and the general assembly uh, by however they want to agree upon it whether it be the senate or the senate and the house jointly confirm those people because you know there there are a, a lot of points that have come out when you know we have a, a lot of uh, attorneys that are in the general assembly and they do great job and they do great work and it's and we shouldn't tell them you know you have to change your profession um, but the American public is becoming more weary of our our government institutions, and we know that. Yes. And so, uh, you know, that's why I got into this, Tony, because I was a business person who saw that happening and said, maybe we can go in and, and I can have a fresh idea, as the governor has always said, a fresh set of eyes and looking at things. So I, I like to be with people. I, I love going to meetings. I love being out in the public. I think that's how you get things done. And that sentiment is growing more and more. So what we first have to do is we have to restore um, this feeling of confidence in the people. And I think that does it. Uh, if, if the governor appoints and then you get confirmation, it kind of takes that away because the governor is a full-time position, uh, not practicing law, you know, doesn't have to come up in front of any of our judges. I think that makes it look as if there is this separation um, between uh, who you're working with and who you're appointing. And that gives a sense of confidence back. So that is something I hope to see. I'm, I'm hearing very positive um, rumblings about something like that. Right. Um, it, it works in a lot of our other cabinet positions. I think that would work well. And again, I think it would give a spirit um, of confidence back to the people, which is inevitably what we want. Because we need to get people, you know, really involved in government again. Absolutely. Um, I agree. I, and, and I think that narrowing, I think the right path, as you said, is to narrow the path of accountability so that accountability yeah. can be seen in, in a much uh, clearer way as opposed to having to hold the House and the Senate all accountable for the decisions that they make. That's just something that people feel like they're too far removed from the final outcome. So in any event, um, we're looking forward to the possibility of judicial reform, and uh, uh, we're confident that we'll be able to debate this out as the session begins and come up with a good bill that we can get passed and on to the governor's desk. Final question here. Um, you're one of the most optimistic leaders in the state, and I, I've always said that. I mean, I've, I've been in many, many meetings and circumstances where you've been and you've spoke and you've... You inspire confidence in um, as really a, a cheerleader for South Carolina and the opportunities that we have here. Tell me what is one of the things that you're most excited about right now, about the economic development and just the overall um, forward push of South Carolina on the national stage. So, you know, during COVID, which was a terrible time, Tony, one of the things I'm most proud of is the way we really stood next to and supported our businesses. And that didn't go unnoticed. Uh, all around the globe, businesses that were looking to come to the U.S. to onshore um, are looking here at South Carolina because they know that first and foremost, we're open for business. 
We know they're going to take care of their employees. We want to help them in doing that. Um, we want to work with our amazing technical colleges um, to create that workforce of the future that, you know, let's face it, you're a father, uh, I'm a mother, our kids are all different. Not all of them are called to go to a four-year institution. I just got back from Germany just a few weeks ago. And, you know, we always talk about the German technical colleges and internships and the things that they do. They have a very great program, but Tony, we are leaps and bounds ahead of them. Right. When you do a deep dive and you see what's going on, I don't think we know that. You're right. I'm excited and optimistic because here in South Carolina, our fingerprints, South Carolinians' fingerprints stretch across the globe. Whether it's with the BMWs that we make here, you know, make more BMWs here in South Carolina than anywhere in the world, the world looks at that. They look at what we're doing. We're now making F-16 Block 70 fighter planes here in South Carolina. Those fighter planes are keeping our allies safe all over the globe. Those are our fingerprints. We look, I, I can go on and on with the amazing companies here. But because we have uh, come together in a spirit of growth and business and capital, you know, really just unleashing the ca capitalism here, right? We're unleashing the spirit of business. This year, we have more people on the pipeline continuing to look at South Carolina. Um, and so I'm very excited about that. You know, and that is something it took years to build. Uh, it's the spirit of camaraderie that they see us come with, this public-private partnership between our businesses and government and businesses and our technical colleges. And the fact that just uh, last year, the governor, along with the General Assembly, putting $75 million into skilling up our workforce. Right. Um, when, I, when I came on the scene, Tony, I was shocked by this number. We only had 41% of South Carolinians with secondary degrees or certifications. Where we were in with business, we should have been upwards of 65%, almost 70%. So we had a long way to go, but we have taken that money and spent it wisely. Uh, and really pushing people to get certified so they can have good careers that are life-sustaining careers that, you know, sustain their families and grow their families. Right. Uh, and so, I, would, I would agree 100% that we need a robust technical college system in South Carolina um, in order to prepare people for the businesses that are going to want to come here because of our culture, because South Carolina is a great place to live and raise a family. Uh, but I also want to say that those who choose to go to a four-year uh, institution, you know, institutions like North Greenville University, we've, we've just invested in something called the Donnan Project, which is essentially building a center. It's going to be called the College of Business and Entrepreneurship, a center for our 470 to 480 ma business majors who are going to be the corporate and business leaders of the future. And the vast majority of these folks that are graduating with degrees to go out and start businesses or work in the in the business sector are doing so carrying with them a biblical worldview and also uh, making the commitment to stay here in South Carolina and be a change agent. You know, a lot of the things that happen in our country today is being influenced, particularly in our culture, by the business community and how good it is that we can turn out uh, transformational leaders, uh, for, and even from our four-year universities, that um, are, are going out into the workforce, starting these businesses, and making a difference in the culture. Um, and, and I know you 
I know you agree with that, as well as the technical colleges working together uh, to make sure that our workforce in South Carolina is the best. Tony, you're absolutely right. And as you know, it's no secret I'm a big fan of North Greenville University. Yes, you are. I think <laughs> I think when we I think when we talk about it as leaders for such a long time, I mean, it almost goes without saying that our four-year institutions are stellar. Right. Where we needed a voice was because parents were starting to think that if their children weren't, you know, uh, excited about a four-year college, that technical colleges were somehow a letdown or right. a second tier option. And I think as a leader, it was important to kind of elevate that also so yes. that parents could feel um, happy and confident knowing wherever they go. But you're right about business people having to have a moral backbone. And, you know, I think good colleges and institutions like North Greenville, they do that, right? They, right. they let them know that everything you do, uh, you, you're, you, you're putting your faith out there. Right. Um, you have to go with what you believe. And so, again, as I said earlier, you know, it was important to David and I to have our children rooted in an, an educational system that did teach that that taught good moral values, that didn't basically, you know, bend a knee to the whims of what was going on in society. And I right. think that's so important. And I hear more and more people talking about that. Well, before we say goodbye, uh, I want to do two things. I want to thank you for, okay. your, for your support of the Heartbeat Bill because you you were a stalwart in all of that and all of our conversations and helped work uh, in front of and behind the scenes to get that done. Um, and I also just want to say, I don't want it to be forever again before we have another conversation because this has been too much fun. So thank you for being on the show today. It's been great. Tony, absolutely. Thank you so much. I'd be happy to come back anytime. Um, and, and we have so much more to talk about in the general assembly too, you know, so we can, we can continue on and on, but it's, it's really important. And I do want your people to know that are listening, that something the governor and I are going to be very passionate about, uh, judicial reform is sitting up there with, with gun control, illegal gun control and stopping the cycle of repeat offenders because we value our law enforcement too much. I, I, I can't thank them enough for what they do. And the fact that, you know, uh, people that are out on bond, uh, getting arrested again for committing another crime, we have to stop that revolving door. Yes. And we'll continue to push that with our general assembly this legislative season. Very passionate about wanting to get that done. Well, I'll tell you what, as we get there, as we get to January, uh, maybe we can come back and do a little preview before the session actually comes in um, and talk about some of the major things that are going to be coming up, because that'd be a great conversation. I would love that, Tony. And, you know, I hope you all are doing well. And I know your year has started off good. And I got to get out there to see you uh, at one of the football games here shortly. Yeah, come on. We'd love to have you anytime. We'd be glad to host you uh, in the president's box for a game. It's a great place to watch a game. And they have some of the best food in the southeast up there. I'm telling you, I don't know (laughs) how they do that, but they pull it off every week. So it's great. God bless you, Lieutenant Governor Abbott. Thank you again for joining us today. And we look forward to our next conversation. Thanks, Tony. God bless you and everybody listening. All right. Lieutenant Governor Pamela Evett, um, just um, as I said, I, I think one of the more most optimistic leaders um, in South Carolina. She travels the state, and I'll, I'll say this, too, about her. She speaks to groups of hundreds, even thousands, uh, but she will also speak to a group of 10 or 20. I mean, 
she doesn't draw a distinction. She's very um, liberal with her time uh, in the way that she spends time, as she was talking about, with the people of South Carolina, hearing their concerns and, um, and, and being willing to engage on a lot of different levels. And I appreciate that about her. So we'll have her back on, uh, get deeper into some of the things the legislature is going to be looking about in January. All right, uh, let's get back to the discussion about Israel. Uh, as you know, uh, they've suffered the worst attack on the Jewish people since the Holocaust now. We, we know that because of the number of dead, the number of wounded, the number of those who have been uh, kidnapped. That number has gotten to be up around um, 150. And right now we have millions of people around the world that are mourning the death of what is confirmed to be over 900 of the Jewish people, 2,600 wounded. The Palestinian death toll is estimated at over 700 with an unknown number of wounded. Hamas is believed to be holding close to 150 hostages, which is the horror of that is second only to the horror of the video of the barbarity of Hamas as they came across the uh, through the fence in Gaza and came into Israel and just the the murder, the rape, the the brutality. Um, I, I I watched some of that. I, I couldn't. F- and, and I, I know, as Ben Shapiro was talking about yesterday, we, we need to see the face of evil. Um, he made the statement that the pictures of 9-11 should have been looped and just continually, continually playing on television. Now, um, I, I, you know, I understand what he's saying because one of the things about making sure that we fight evil is to make sure that we understand the nature of it, the extent of it, and we don't forget. Sometimes we look away and we tend to forget how uh, despicable evil really can be. Um, and we don't need to forget. It needs to be addressed. It needs to be um, eradicated. I mean, uh, what what's happening right now in Israel is they're preparing a ground assault and the goal, which has been made very clear by Prime Minister Netanyahu, is they're going to go in and to completely uh, eviscerate or take out the ability of Hamas to do this again, ever. Um, a lot of people forget the history here. You know, Israel pulled out of Gaza. The Palestinians wanted a place of their own. And, you know, people talk about Israel being an apartheid state. It's just not true. Um, Israel allows was allowing up to 17,000 workers to get visas to come in from Gaza into Israel. And you have to be careful about that because Hamas took over Gaza. I mean, you had the, the, the PLO, the Palestinians were being governed by uh, a, a government that was not pro-Israel, of course, uh, that still was demanding more and more and more concessions from the Israeli government, but they were not being governed by terrorists until the the people actually elected and voted in Hamas and the terrorists as the leaders in Palestine or in Gaza. And this is, you know, you, you have to be careful because they've made it clear that what they want is the eradication of every Jew from the face of the earth. And you don't just 
open up and let people flow in from that area of the country. In fact, before they built a barrier between Gaza and Israel, you had, um, if you maybe some of you are old enough to remember, you had uh, suicide bombers walking into cafe- cafes and blowing themselves up and killing as many Jewish people as possible. I mean, all of this has been going on for decades. And the the Jewish people, the Jewish government, to call them apartheid when there are two Arab parties that sit and are represented in the Jewish Knesset, the Jewish governing body, when you've got workers coming back and forth, when you've got aid flowing into Gaza, millions of dollars coming not only from Israel, but from the United States, from the European Union, all this money that's funding now terrorists. I mean, that's that's the way you have to look at it. I mean, it, when... Um, the Palestinian people were trying to build their cities, build their buildings. They they needed concrete, for example. They and and the Israeli government sent concrete. What happened to that concrete? Well, when the last time there was an incursion of of into Israel by Hamas, we discovered Israel discovered all this extensive tunnel work under in, that was running up under the country of Israel from Gaza, and what what was the purpose of that? It was for the purpose of terrorism, for the purpose of being able to get into the country in a clandestine fashion and then to be able to break out in different places and to, to affect terror on the people of Israel. And they used the concrete to build those tunnels, concrete that was sent to the people to build their cities. Now, there are many people living in Gaza that are actually under the thumb of Hamas, their own leaders. And and Hamas, they do not care about the people because they put their military operations in hospitals. They put them in neighborhoods where there are civilians. They do all this. Uh, they put them in mosques uh, so that if Israel retaliates, if they attack, then Israel is accused of being brutal because they attacked a hospital or they attacked a mosque. When the truth is that Israel constantly warns when they're going to attack, they tell people. I, I don't know of, other than the United States, I don't know of another country in the world that telegraphs their um, military movements for the purpose of protecting as many civilian lives as possible. They tell people, get out. We know that Hamas is operating a terrorist uh, base here. We have to neutralize it. So if you're in the area, you need to leave now. And that warning is given. So what does that do? It gives Hamas the opportunity to know, first of all, where Israel is likely going to attack. And then it, when they when 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 they uh, attack, then they can be better prepared. But it's to spare innocent lives and of, of women and children. And the problem, of course, is that Hamas keeps those people there. They keep them from leaving because Hamas doesn't care about the people that live in Gaza. They only care about their terrorist activities. They're perfectly willing to sacrifice their own people for the opportunity to kill the Jewish people. And so we need to remember that. I mean, this is we're we're talking about animalistic behavior here. Um, so in any event, this this idea of apartheid is just a myth. Uh, when you hear the, the squad, when you hear Rashida Tlaib, uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, 
uh, Ilhan Omar, when you hear Cori Bush and some of the others and some of the uh, media in this country using the word apartheid to to uh, and talking about is the state of Israel, it's ridiculous because Arabs have a lot of freedom in Israel. In fact, the last time I was there visiting the country, um, I had interactions with a lot of Arab people who were living at peacefully in Israel. And our bus driver, our others that I came in contact with, they were working, making a living, and supporting their families in the country of Israel. So the idea that this is some kind of apartheid government is absurd, and that needs to be absolutely rejected, as does the idea of moral equivalency. There is no moral equivalency between a country that's trying to protect itself from a terrorist organization and the terrorist organization that comes into the country unprovoked and begins to murder women and children and take them hostage for the purpose of executing them on video or putting them in a place that when Israel begins to defend itself, which it must, then it ends up being the death of innocents and they can they can get their, uh, their sympathizers around the world, like the squad here in the United States, to join them in pointing to the fact that there were innocent people killed. Uh, that's all on Hamas. Every drop of blood that is shed in Gaza, every person who dies in this offensive, their blood is on Hamas. It is not on Israel for trying to defend itself. Um, right now, there are thousands, tens of thousands of Israeli soldiers that are massing uh, near Gaza. I mean, this is going to be a long, protracted battle because they're going to have to go into Gaza, and it's going to be street fighting. Gaza is a very compact area, and you've got multiple buildings and, and this network of tunnels that I was talking about that extends into Israel but certainly is under um, the the streets in Gaza. And the Israelis are going to have to go in. They're going to have the IDF forces are going to have to try to find these hostages. They're going to try to rescue as many as they can, but they're not going to pull back from going in because of the hostage hostages. That makes it more difficult. It makes it uh, emotionally uh, wrenching. Uh, and I want you to be prepared because there are going to be videos online of Hamas terrorists executing innocent Israeli civilians. We, we just need to know that. They're going to put it on video. They're already doing it, and they're going to continue to do it as Israel presses forward. Um, Hamas has flooded the Internet, in fact, with videos of brutality against civilians. I, as I said, I watched part of that when I was watching Ben Shapiro yesterday. I just couldn't watch very much of it. I mean, it's so, it, it's so terrifying to think about that there are people in the world that would behave this way. Uh, yesterday, daily, as, as I said, Ben Shapiro aired extensive video of all of this. The videos were hard to watch because it, it is evil and barbaric. It's terrorism. It's not militants. And by the way, the New York Times refers to them as militants. They are not militants. They are terrorists. Uh, you've, in one of the videos, uh, there was a father seen directing his children out of their house. He's on the roof. He's trying to help his children escape by climbing out on the roof. And the video shows the children running as the father is shot and killed by the terrorist. Uh, women were savagely beaten. They were raped. The video shows many who were grabbed and forced into vehicles, and they were taken into Gaza 
um, as, as we said, as hostages to be used as human shields and as propaganda weapons against Israel. All of this, every bit of it, is war crimes. These are crimes against humanity being perpetrated against the Jews by Hamas. Um, there's in, in the history of Israel, there's never been a 300,000 reservist call-up to active duty. That's how many people, that's the largest number in Israeli history. Most of the forces, as I said, are being concentrated near the border with Gaza, along with numerous tanks and armored vehicles. But some of the forces are being directed north to guard the border with Lebanon, where at least two instances of fighting have broken out between Israel and Hezbollah. Um, and I reported yesterday that the United States has a carrier group there. Uh, they, one of our most sophisticated and newest aircraft carriers, along with a cruiser and four destroyers, are, are there in the med to try to keep um, Iran from getting directly involved and from any of other of Israel's enemies from joining and trying to uh, take advantage of this situation. In the coming days, when the full-scale ground invasion begins, um, it's, it's going to be um, a, a terrible thing to see. Hamas is continuing to launch rockets into Tel Aviv and at Jerusalem. Uh, they, uh, again, operating out of hospitals and mosques, making it difficult for um, is the uh, IDF to target them. But Prime Minister Netanyahu is indicating that there's not going to be any talks. In fact, late yesterday, uh, some of the spokespersons for Hamas reached out to Al Jazeera and suggested that maybe there could be we, we would talk about a truce or we would talk about a ceasefire. Uh, but I can tell you, Benjamin Netanyahu is not having any of that. He said this yesterday in response to it. Israel didn't start this war. Israel will finish it. Hamas will understand that by attacking us, they've made a mistake of historic proportions. We will exact a price that will be remembered by them and Israel's other enemies for decades to come. Okay, this is what has to happen. I mean, when you face down evil of this magnitude, facing down that evil means it has to be eradicated. Hamas has demonstrated there is going to be no peace as long as they're allowed to operate in Gaza. I think that's abundantly clear from the brutality of their attacks. Um, and in the United States, pro-Palestine rallies were held in several cities, one of the largest was the pro-Palestinian Democratic Socialist event that was held in New York. There was an estimated 700 people gathered in Times Square where they didn't directly applaud the attack, uh, not at this rally in New York. Now, there were other places where they were celebrating the attack, but in the rally in New York, they chanted things like, uh, resistance is justified, and smash the Zionist state. I mean, obviously, those are calls for Israel to be attacked. And they also chanted, from the river to the sea. Now, when you hear this, uh, uh, you know, th this is not free Palestine from the river to the sea. Doesn't mean that Palestine needs to be freed from Israeli occupation and there needs to be more freedom for the Palestinian people uh, in that area. That, that, that's not what that slogan's about. Freeing Palestine from, from the river to the sea is the driving of all of the Jews into the sea. They've made it clear that that's what they want. Excuse me. 
Um, they, the, the, they, they've been clear about what their goals are, which is to make sure that there are no Jews left in the Holy Land, left in the place that God promised Abraham that his descendants would be. And so uh, when you hear these kind of chants, that's what that's about. That's a direct attack against Israel, and it's actually a call for Israel to be eradicated. There were rallies in other, sta- in other cities, including Chicago and Atlanta. There were some tensions that flared down in Florida, in Fort Lauderdale, when the Israeli and Palestinian supporters crossed paths. According to CBS Miami, police were able to quickly restore order by separating the protesters. And so all of the, at least the vast majority of the protest ended up being peaceful, but there's a lot of tension, as you can imagine, between both sides. Representatives Ilhan Omar, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Cori Bush, Rashida Tlaib, they all condemned the brutality of Hamas attacks, but they all tried to say that Israel and the United States were somehow responsible for Hamas reaction. And they tried to talk about, they tried to equivocate when it comes to Israel and the way that they behave toward the terrorist in Gaza and the way the terrorists behave. And there is no equivocation. Jonathan Greenblatt is the head of the Anti-Defamation League. And look, he is no friend of conservatives. I mean, he actually comes out and attacks conservatives often. uh, But this time... He went on MSNBC, and in the middle of an interview of that network, he began to attack the network for the way that they were covering this particular uh, attack by Hamas. Here's Jonathan Greenblatt, and you, you can hear the passion in his voice. I love this show, and I love this network, but I've got to ask who is writing the scripts? Hamas? They are not fighters. They are not militants. And I'm looking right at the camera. They are terrorists. It is a barbarian who rapes and brutalizes women, who kills children in front of their parents. Guys, get the story right. Please talk to the Israeli mothers and fathers who lost their children. And please stop calling this a retaliation. This is a defensive measure against an organization that is committed to one thing, killing Jews, not a peaceful resolution of a conflict, but murdering Jews. That, of course, he is absolutely right about this. I mean, there is no question that that is the mission of Hamas, um, that that is exactly what they hope to achieve here is the death of as many Jewish people as possible, and they hope to turn world opinion against the state of Israel. Uh, Right now, I I would urge Republicans in the House, I mean, there's a lot of reasons that we need to quickly find a new Speaker of the House, but one of those reasons is that the House needs to get its act together so that they can vote for appropriations to go to Israel. Um, This is... That, you know, the United States has always been a chief supporter of Israel, and we need to stand with the Jewish people now. We need to support them. There's already requests for munitions, for equipment, um, and some of those munitions and equipment are going to be hard to come by uh, because of the amount of military aid and equipment that's been sent to Ukraine. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have done that. I'm just saying that that's just a fact. Um, the stockpiles that we have 
have been drained and it's going to be we're going to have to get our manufacturing moving and the, and the ability to manufacture weapons and to be able to appropriate the money that's needed to make that happen to help Israel defend itself and to, and to help sustain Israel as they start this ground offensive. Uh, don't think this is going to be a four or five day thing. Uh, this is not going to be the Gulf War. Uh, this is going to be house to house, building to building, fighting with all kinds of traps set for the IDF forces. Uh, they're fighting guerrilla warriors that are very good at what they do. You know, one of the things, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal today that I thought was very informative. It was talking about the fact that Israel has poured all of this money into high-tech military equipment and monitoring equipment. They poured a lot of money into high-tech intelligence gathering. So what happened? Well, they took their eye off of the things that can wreck high-tech pretty quickly. You know, how did, how did Hamas break through this fence this, that was augmented with all this technology? How did they get in to get so many of their fighters into southern Israel to take hostages and murder civilians? Well, they just drove a bulldozer through the fence. I mean, it doesn't matter how much technology you've got on a fence. If you can just crank up a bulldozer, drive through it, and you've created an opening, there were 20 or more openings in the barrier between Gaza and Israel where fighters were able to pour in. Some of them used hang gliders. The, the people that were massacred at this outdoor music festival, there were 260 people who died at least, um, and hang gliders were used. You can, If you see the video, one of the videos that Ben Shapiro put up yesterday, in the background of the music festival, you can see people dancing, they're having a good time, and in the background are, high, are hang gliders landing. And these are the people that in just a few moments were going to be slaughtering the people that had showed up to have a good time and to celebrate. So, um, you know, th this is that's the kind of low-tech stuff that can work around the high-tech if you don't stay on guard against both things. And that's going to have to that's going to result in a shift in the way the IDF thinks about possible attacks in the future. They've got to guard against the high-tech stuff, but they've also got to have the ability to guard against just some of the attacks that can take place in a very low-tech way. So hopefully, uh, back to talking about Republicans in the House, you've got Steve Scalise, you've got Jim Jordan. There's a rumor out there that Kevin McCarthy might allow his name to be put in nomination again. I, I really hope that doesn't happen. Uh, I don't think that would do anything to unite the Republican Party. Uh, I think if they're going to get united, they need to unite around Scalise or Jordan pick one. They need to do this in the caucus. They need to get it worked out behind closed doors before they go to the floor to have the vote. They need to know how that vote is going to come out, and they need to come out in a unified fashion. If they can do that um, with a new Speaker of the House, then I think things can move forward, and there can be a positive image given from the uh, from the Republicans, and that they need to do it quickly. Uh, and, and, and let me just say this. I want you to imagine for a minute, what if we had a government shutdown right now? I mean, what if in the middle of war breaking out in the Middle, of e in the middle East, 
the U.S. government was shut down. Now, I know a lot of people think the U.S. government, it's a good thing when the U.S. government shut down, is shut down anytime. And I get it. Look, I, you know, the last time the government shut down, my first thought was, well, that there's not anything the government can do to me today to restrict my freedom because that's sort of how the government has begun to function in the United States. Um, but on the other hand, at a time like this, then these shutdowns and things that would inhibit our ability to stand with our allies against evil, um, that, you know, I'm thankful at the moment that we don't have a shutdown, and I'm hoping that as we move forward, this is going to help the negotiations once we get a speaker, that this will help Republicans get concessions from Democrats. I don't think Republicans should just simply walk away and let Democrats use Republicans as a doormat when it comes to getting uh, keeping the government open. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying Republicans need to work to get something, but they need to be realistic in what they can get based on the fact that they just have a slim majority in the House, and you've got a Democrat-controlled Senate and White House. You have to work to get what you can get. Um, and then not have the expectations that you're going to get everything that you want in that scenario. All right, I wanted to take a minute before the show ends today to talk about uh, yesterday, Columbus Day. You know, with everything going on in uh, the news coming out about Israel over the weekend, I, I just blew it yesterday. I'll just be the first to tell you. When I, when I blow it, I want to fess up and let people know. But I should have acknowledged Columbus Day yesterday um, simply because there, there are a lot of people now, including uh, President Biden, who's referring to this as Indigenous People Day, uh, not Columbus Day. And that's ridiculous. Uh, Columbus had his faults like every great leader. I don't care who, who you're talking about, whether it's George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or Martin Luther King Jr., or Columbus, or any any leader that you can name, if you look hard enough, you're going to find the nature of sin. You're going to see the fallen nature on display. You're going to see that great men do great things, and sometimes they're capable of doing very bad things at the same time. But that doesn't lessen the fact that we have great men who have done great things and, and have done bad things. The bad things don't lessen the value of the great things they did, unless you're a progressive and you think that you have to throw everything out that someone has accomplished because of some of the bad things that they did. I think Matt Walsh had um, a really good piece yesterday about Columbus Day, and I want to just read some of it here uh, and, com and comment on it. Uh, now, if you hear Columbus acknowledged at all today in the media by any political or cultural figure of note, it will almost certainly be a condemnation. They'll tell us, because they've been telling us for many years, that Columbus was a genocidal maniac whose arrival led to the alleged genocide of so-called Native Americans or indigenous people who came from somewhere. I mean, everybody came from somewhere to this land. I came from Germany. That's where my descendant, or my, my descendants, my ancestors came from. From, uh, from Germany to Sweden to the United States. And so, yes, but am, am I an indigenous person? I mean, when you go back, how many grandfathers do I have to go through? How many 
I was born here in America, and you go back in my family, and it goes all the way back to the early 1700s. So how far do you have to go before you can be considered a person who is indigenous to this country when you look at your ancestral heritage? Um, all these all these portrayals of Columbus are are just abysmal. Uh, as mentioned, Walsh goes on, I've made the case many times for why Columbus deserves to be celebrated uh, and deserves to have a federal holiday and his statues and his and cities named after him. The case is pretty straightforward. Christopher Columbus was a great man, one of the most consequential figures to ever live on planet Earth. He quite easily had more of an impact on every single one of his modern, modern critics combined times a thousand. These are the people we give holidays to, or the ones that we used to, the people who shaped the world and who say whatever else you want about Columbus, he did more than almost any other single person to shape the world we live in today. Um, and, you know, this idea that uh, he was lost and just accidentally came upon the, uh, the continent of North America, I mean, that he, that he was looking for the East Indies, uh, in other words, a, a land that he knew existed rather than looking for a land that he didn't know exist. And that's a great point that Walsh makes. How could Columbus have been looking for the expansion, the expansive territory of North America when no one knew at the time that it existed? And so Columbus, even though he was looking for the East Indies, found, um, you know, it, it, he was willing to lead, and, and at, that, at that time in the world, by the way, leading a group of people on a ship, raising the money uh, to, to take a journey like this that was very likely to end in the, his death and the death of his crew, but he was willing to navigate and to get to the new land, so to speak, um, and we deserve, he deserves to be praised for that. Now, as a governor, when he got to, when he began to govern, he was terrible. I mean, there's no question about that. Uh, four voyages he made. He discovered a lot of Caribbean islands. He explored the coast of Central and South America. The full scope of what he discovered would not be fully understood, Matt Walsh writes, until after he died. But the fact remains that Columbus brought Western civilization across a vast and uncharted, dangerous sea and into a previously unexplored and unknown hemisphere of the globe. Now, Columbus captured slaves. He executed Spaniards and Indians under his rule. He took gold, and he, he was a bad governor. He was a flawed human being. And we should not celebrate the bad things that he did, but we can celebrate the good things, the courage, courageous things that he did, while acknowledging the bad things, because if we were going to... If we look at every human being, and I made this point earlier, but I'm going to end the program today with it. If we look at every human being who's ever lived and been a great leader, we will find plenty in our great leaders to celebrate, but we will also find a lot of things, if we look deep enough, that would say that those leaders were very problematic people. They had dark sides to them, as we all do. And if, and if those dark sides are allowed to come out if the sin nature is not under control uh, by, by God through the Holy Spirit in us, then the dark side is going to come out, and it comes out even in great leaders. But it shouldn't cause us to turn away from them and to cease to celebrate them and to replace Columbus Day 
with Indigenous People Day um, is an insult to the fact that Columbus is one of the most significant fig figures in human history and what he was able to accomplish and what happened because he was willing to take that journey. Basically, we're here today, and the United States was eventually established, and it's one of the greatest um, countries that the world has ever seen because, yes, we, again, can have our dark side, but the United States has been, has been a country that has freed more people from despots. We have served as an example of freedom and liberty to the rest of the world, and we should celebrate that. And because of that, we should revere Columbus on Columbus Day and not try to undermine his legacy. All right, that's all the time we've got for today. Listen, thanks for listening to the program, whether you listen live or you listened to, you're listening to the podcast. I want to thank you. If you are listening to the podcast, please pass the word along that you're enjoying it. Leave me a good review. Um, this is Truth in Politics and Culture, by the way. And uh, if, you can, if, if you can tell people about it, maybe more people will come along and begin to listen. The show is growing. And I want to see that continue. And thanks to everyone who was watching on Facebook Live today. God bless you. I'll see you in the morning at 730, uh, hopefully, if I can get over this cold. And we'll do it all over again. <laughs>